three weeks ago, Tabitha and I had a wonderful little treat. We took a trip to Philadelphia that coincided with a work trip that I was taking, and never having seen the sights of one of United, the U.S.'s largest cities, uh, we went around to take a look at them. So we went to uh, the uh, Independence Hall, where the Constitution was signed, where the Declaration of Independence was signed, and we went to see the Liberty Bell. How many of you have actually seen the Liberty Bell in person? You've actually been there to Philadelphia. You've been into the place where it is now encased. I don't know how much the Liberty Bell has relevance in your life today. How often would you say you think about the Liberty Bell, what it means to you, what it means to our country? I went in there, and it's encased in this museum with glass windows behind it, looking straight out to Independence Hall, where the Liberty Bell once hung. It, it used to be known simply as the State House Bell. When did it get the phrase, the Liberty Bell? When was it called the Liberty Bell? Do you know who first named it as such? Abolitionists, those who were fighting against slavery. And do you know why? The Liberty Bell is called the Liberty Bell. You may know this because on the bell is inscribed a Bible verse. Leviticus 25 and verse 10. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It's speaking in the Old Testament context of jubilee the release of God's Old Testament people from debts and from other things. Proclaim liberty. And on this bell, this has been inscribed, proclaim liberty. And the abolitionists of the mid-1800s recognized that liberty had not been proclaimed to all the inhabitants of the land. And so in particular, they adopted this phrase, proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. And they, they, they titled that bell the Liberty Bell. And do you know across the generations that have followed, that bell has taken an iconic significance. It has not been rung for now how many years before it cracked? I think around 1850. It's not been rung, but yet it sits there. It was a, 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 a duplicate bell was made to support the women's suffrage movement. It was provided as part of the civil rights movement, a kind of symbol and a galvanizing force to people like Martin Luther King Jr. It has toured the country at various times as people have come and clamored around this bell, proclaim liberty. It has meant something more than the bell itself. Where does it sit now? In a museum? We went right up to the bell. And you know as we were looking at that bell, what that, that U.S. Parks officer was reminding, don't touch. Don't touch. It's very fragile. See the crack there. Don't touch. It's an interesting thing. How do you do in museums? I'm kind of a breeze through a museum kind of guy myself. Wow, that's a cool picture. Where's the next one? All right, that's a cool one, too. Maybe I'm a Philistine in that when it comes to that way. But, you know, I say that's a, that's a cool thing. I'm not really one of those that's walking up there. Oh, 
what a wonderful context there. What brush strokes he used there. I'm just not really like that. And, and, and you say, where are you going with this, Peter? Okay, here's where I'm going with it. Whether you're going to look at the Liberty Bell that's hanging in a museum, and you just look at it, but you can't touch, and you just kind of say, that's cool, and then you walk out. Or whether you're going into an art museum, and you look at a painting, and you get into really dive into all the details. Wow, look at those contexts. Look at the colors. Look at the brush strokes. What an incredible piece. You know what the challenge is about going to museums? You're going to walk out unchanged. It's going to mean nothing to you other than looking at it and saying, well, that's cool. And do you know the exact same thing happens when we come to Scripture? We approach texts of Scripture like it's hanging up in an art museum. And we stand there like little critics and we say, Let's try to figure out what that phrase means. Let's see how this fits into the bigger context. Friends, we should do that. I hope if you've come to this church for any length of time, you know that we believe in that. But do you know what the danger is? After you've taken apart a passage of Scripture and you've put it all together again and you've understood every comma and every semicolon and every pronoun, you turn around and you close your Bible and you walk out and you said, well, that was interesting. And it's gone. Now, I start here because I reflect on the fact that when you come to Mark chapter 13, one of the most challenging interpretive uh, passages in all of our Bible, and certainly in the Gospels, you are going to find reams of material, books this thick, that are going to be talking in part about what Mark 13 means. And they're going to be asking questions like, what did Jesus mean when he said, the end is not yet? What is the abomination of desolation? How does this relate to the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Or how does it relate beyond to the end times? How is the Son of Man going to come and gather together his elect from the four winds? Is he talking about the rapture? Is there even a rapture? What's this tribulation he's talking about? Are we going to be in the tribulation? Or are we going to be long gone? And you're going to go around and around and around in circles. And you know, sometime if you spend long enough, you might reach a position. I'm pre-millennial. I am a-millennial. I am pre-trib. I am post-trib. And you could apply all these labels to it. And you are the master at interpreting Mark 13 and how it relates to every other verse in the Bible that deals with the same thing. And you can turn around and walk away unchanged. And you can be no closer to Jesus Christ for all of the knowledge that you just soaked in about Jesus' sermon called the Olivet Discourse. That's true. That's true. And I start here because as we dive into Mark 13 together, and as we try to figure out actually what Jesus meant, as we look at the commas and the semicolons and the pronouns and everything else that helps understand the context and the meaning of Jesus' words, I want to start today by doing very little of that. 
I want to make sure that you and I don't breeze through Mark 13 together and walk away into Mark 14 and say, well, that was interesting, Pastor Peter. I think I understand it a little bit more. And you're not changed at all. You don't love Jesus more. You, don't, or you aren't grounded in your faith in any more significant way. You just got a bunch of interesting interpretive knowledge. No, let's not miss the forest for the trees here, friend. What I'm going to do today, God willing, is we're going to step back from Mark chapter 13. We're going to look at the big picture at what comes out of Mark chapter 13, and we're going to lay down some interpretive markers. We're going to lay down some pillars, some foundations for us to work through Mark 13 over the remaining several weeks together. The title of the message this morning I'm going to call Mark 13, Crisis and Certainty. Mark 13, Crisis and and certainty. And we're going to use those ideas of crisis and of certainty to help us introduce this very challenging chapter and give us a push off into the lake together in future weeks. Well, let's start at the beginning of Mark 13 with verse 1. And I want you to notice the context in which Jesus is speaking here. Notice in verse 1, he's, it, it, it Mark tells us, and as he went out of the temple. Just pause there. As he went out of the temple. Now you folks are bright people. If Mark tells us that Jesus went out of the temple, where does that tell us he was before? This is a really hard question, and I know I'm testing you. He was in the temple. You guys are, I told you you're bright. If he went out of the temple, that means he was in the temple. Now, does this line up with where we were last week? It does. You remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about him being in the temple and speaking to the Pharisees. And he was speaking to the scribes. And he was telling them how do the, the scribes say that, that Jesus is the son of David when David calls him his Lord. And we, we talked about all of that. But again, if you, if you go back even several more weeks beyond that, you remember where we started the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry before his crucifixion. And Jesus comes in to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, signifying from Old Testament prophecy that I'm the king, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one you've been waiting for. And immediately the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees get get their backs up a little bit. They, they, get their, their, they get their, I don't know, their nose up in the air. They say, who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing these things? You remember Jesus comes into the temple, the broader court of the Gentiles, and clears it out. He says, this temple is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. You've made it nothing more than like some kind of shopping mall in which all kinds of fraud and deception is taking place. Jesus is expressing God's judgment against the religious system that was there. And then last week, finally, we saw Jesus sitting across from the treasury in the court of the women, watching these rich people go in and pour in large sums of money. And then he sees a widow, very poor widow, dropping in two little coins. And he says those were the last that she had. She has given more than everyone else 
who gave. So Jesus has been in the temple, teaching in the temple, communicating God's message in the temple, the central place of Judaism. And now he departs out of the temple. And will you notice here? One of his disciples saith unto a master, See what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. We're going to start here this morning first with what I'm going to call a chilling comment. A chilling comment. It's almost a comment in passing, but we're going to see in context it has, it has a real significance. This man, one of his disciples, Jesus, look at these buildings. By the way, do you know how you know when an Iowan is walking around Minneapolis? Do you know? Because he's walking around like this. Iowans, I love you, okay? I, I, I've been to the tallest building in Iowa, actually, in Des Moines. You can see it from a long way away. I'm just saying, you can see it from a really long way away. And I just get this picture. You've seen people walking around Minneapolis. You've probably walked around Minneapolis looking at this. That's what I do when I walk around New York. Wow, look at those buildings. And, and that is what these disciples, whoa. Now, you need to get a picture of why they were doing this. Maybe some of you have been to the Western Wall, what's called the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today. There are stones at the Wailing Wall today, the Western Wall in the old city of Jerusalem that date back to Herod's time. This time, they were stones that Jesus would have seen. And they, in the Western Wall today, it is the retaining wall around the temple complex. It is not the temple. So when Jesus says there wouldn't be one stone left on another, he wasn't talking about that retaining wall going all the way around. But we can get a picture, an idea of what this is. Do you know you can look this up today? There is a stone at the western wall today in that, in that western wall. It is 44 and a half feet long of limestone. 44 and a half feet long. I don't know what you think about this. Maybe a little bit smaller than that, probably from one end of the wall to the other end here. You might just be in a, in a, in a rough kind of guess. 11 feet high. That's nearly two of me. That's how tall this limestone slab is. And they did very complex uh, estimate of how deep it is. They can't see how deep it is because it's a retaining wall, right? But they did a guess and within the last, oh, 15 years or so, they approximated that it was six to eight feet deep. 44 and a half feet long, 11 feet high, six to eight feet deep. Do you know how much they estimate this stone weighs? 250 to 300 tons. 250 to 300 tons. And you say, modern equipment. No. Herod. Even to this day, some people don't fully know exactly how. I mean, it blows our minds that they could have transported stones of this size. You get a picture. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, describes for us this temple and how utterly mind-boggling it was. 
This is, I'll quote for you, Josephus. He says, now the outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing or lacked nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes. He said, you, you were going to be shocked when you looked at the temple. For it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun, reflected back a very fiery splendor, and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. Can you just imagine walking up to Jerusalem and seeing, coming over the Mount of, of, of Olives, walking up toward the splendor as the sun is rising in the morning and the sun is shining off those gold plates and Josephus says it is so bright, it's like looking at the sun itself shining off that temple. These massive 200 to 300 ton stones. This was just one of the marvels of the ancient world. And it's no wonder that Jesus is hearing from his disciples, say, Jesus, look at these buildings. I mean, these guys were Galileans. Some of them were fishermen from kind of the sticks. They're looking around and saying, whoa, just like you and I would have. Whoa. And do you see how Jesus has just an incredibly unsentimental response? He doesn't even say to him, guys, you're right. Let's sit back and, and take a look at this. Notice what Jesus says. You see these great buildings? There isn't going to be one stone left on another. Now, you have to understand, transport yourself back into first century Judaism to understand how shaking this would have been to these men. The temple meant everything to the first century Jew. It was their pride. It was their glory. It was their joy. Not just for its external beauty, of which they could be so proud but for what it meant to them. The temple was the place where they met God. The temple was the place where they worshipped Him. The temple was the place where they set, made sacrifices that were for the forgiveness of their sins. The temple was the place where God was in the holy place where the high priest went in once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. This was their identity. The temple was at the heart of it. And now Jesus says to them in almost unsentimental fashion, this building is going to be destroyed and not one stone is going to be left upon another. You see, friend, Jesus was, in fact, speaking of the destruction of the temple that would occur in A.D. 70, only several decades after he said this. And Jesus was right on the nose. He hit it right on the money. The temple was destroyed by the Romans a Roman siege was laid against the city of Jerusalem uh, based on the provocation of rebels, of, of, of Jewish independence fighters in the city. This siege was utterly brutal, devastating. Josephus says that people had come into Jerusalem for the Passover, for the celebration of one of the great feasts. And the population had swollen, and then, and then the siege came. And so these people from outside Jerusalem, who didn't even live in the city, were now stuck in the city. They couldn't get out, and the food supply quickly ran out. What Josephus estimates is that 1.1 million people were killed in the siege. 1.1 million, the bodies piling upon one another in the most gruesome kinds of starvation, Utterly horrific. 
Not only that, in the captivity itself, Josephus estimates that nearly 100,000 Jews were taken captive after the siege. The absolute destruction, the devastation of this, not only this temple, but of this city. And truly, indeed, this, every stone of that ornate, beautiful temple was thrown down toppled to the ground. The only thing that remains is that retaining wall. Incredible, incredible devastation. And Jesus says, this is coming. And you can just feel the earthquake for these men. Their entire reality is now feeling unstable. It's being shaken. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple. Now get a picture in your minds of this. You leave Jerusalem. You head east as he was to stay overnight in Bethany, perhaps. And you come up to the top after crossing the brook Kidron. You come up to the top of the Mount of Olives and you turn and you look toward the eastern gate of the city and you see the temple above it, perhaps reflecting off the gold that was there. What an incredible vantage point. Indeed, to this day, if you went there, you'd look over the eastern gate and you'd see the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim uh, 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 temple that is there. But in that day, you would have looked and you would have seen the temple and it would have given you this vantage point. And you can see how these disciples have been affected. Notice what they say. They say, tell us, verse 4, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when, when all these things shall be fulfilled? Matthew tells us, in fact, they asked another question. When is going to be your coming? When's going to be the sign of your coming? They thought, well, Jesus, if this temple is getting destroyed, then the end of everything must be near. When are you coming? Truly, these two events are going to come hand in hand. If, if the temple's going down, then, then you must be coming back for your, your kingdom. And notice then Jesus launches into a sermon in verse 5, the Olivet Discourse. And he talks about all of the challenges coming their way. He talks about ultimately the coming of the Son of Man. And he gives these, these words that even to this day, scholars and commentators fight and fight and fight and fight over what he means. You know, friends, you could take the people you listen to on the radio, faithful men who have proclaimed God's word, and you wouldn't find their interpretations just a little bit off on this passage. You would find them radically opposed to each other. Like this guy who loves the Bible and is committed to the authority of the Bible, he says this. And this guy over here who is equally committed to the authority of the Bible and he loves God's word and he's trying to get it right, he is literally 100% opposite of that guy. You, you, you cannot converge them. You can't harmonize them. You really have to pick which one. What do we think about this passage? And as we come into this study together, I want to introduce you to that to know, first of all, we need to come at this with some humility. Smarter people than I am. More biblically grounded people than I am. People who are undoubtedly have been closer to God than I am may end up seeing it differently than I do. And you know what? That's okay. 
That's okay. No, that's not to say that every interpretation is valid. Jesus meant something when he said this. And we should try to figure out what he meant. I'm not saying anything goes. Interpret it any way you want. It'll all be right. No, there is something that he meant to say here, and we should say that. But we should also come with the humility to say, you know what? I'm not going to be dogmatic pridefully about what I say. I'm going to take it humbly to say, Jesus, help me here to glean out of it what you want me to glean. But here's the other thing that we have to agree on. We have to see that Jesus meant this practically. Don't forget the question these guys asked him. They said, Jesus, you've just shaken our universe. You said the temple is going to be thrown down. The center of our worship, the center of our Jewish identity. And then they come to him, Jesus, tell us. Tell us, when? Do you think what Jesus was intending to say to them, well, guys, I'm going to give you a nice museum piece here that you can talk, uh, that you can think about and argue about for the next 2,000 years with absolutely no practical effect on the way you live. Do you think that was what Jesus was intending? Or do you think he was intending to answer their question? That's what I think. And, you know, friends, ultimately it doesn't matter as much where specifically you come out on some of these hotly disputed issues about what he meant. What matters is this. Are you getting the main things that are going to change your life today? Not whether you're going to, you and I are going to come at it differently. We might come out at the end of this chapter and say, Pastor Peter, you know what? I see it a little bit differently. As we went through it, this is, this is how I see it. And I'm going to say, great. I'm glad you're studying. I'm glad you're thinking. But here's what I, I don't want us to finish this. I don't want to finish this walking out of a museum and saying, huh, that was interesting. I agree with Pastor Peter, but I, I, didn't, get, I didn't change at all through this. So, so, so what is the relevance then of what Jesus is saying? Well, let's look at the second point just very briefly. I'm going to call it a coming crisis. We talked first about a chilling comment. We talked secondly about a coming crisis. Notice what Jesus says. Take heed, his answer is, lest any man deceive you. He says, you might be deceived about this. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled. For such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. And friends, I'll let you read this on your own time. But suffice it to say, over the next several verses, Jesus is talking about a crisis that's coming. He's talking about a political crisis, a global crisis of wars coming, of earthquakes, of natural disasters coming upon mankind. He, 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 it is an extreme crisis he speaks of. He speaks of a crisis such that has never been since the beginning of the world and that will never be since it. Now again, we're going to see is this speaking about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 when 1.1 million people died, it's estimated, when starvation and famine and all these things? Or is it looking ahead to something different? We'll talk about that. People have taken different views on that. The point is this. Jesus is saying a crisis is coming. And it's not just that. It's a spiritual crisis because he says, you're going to be persecuted. My followers are going to be opposed. They are going to be put to death. The family bonds are going to be loosened. Their own families are going to be rejecting them, are going to be turning them in. They are, my followers are going to be under this ex extreme kind of affliction and trouble. 
he warns them not only of that, but the possibility of deception, of all this crisis and all this persecution potentially deceiving people who would otherwise profess the name of Christ. He says, beware, there's crisis coming. He told that to his disciples. And friends, he says the same thing to us today. Here, think of these Jews, disciples, Jesus' disciples. They look at the temple as the ultimate unshakable thing. Look at these stones. Look at this beauty. Look at this grandeur. And Jesus says, that's going to the ground. And this is a picture of the crisis that is coming on the whole world. Watch out. It's a coming crisis. But that's why, thirdly, we need to talk here about a central certainty. A central certainty. Because through this crisis, through this difficulty, shines brightness. And this ultimately is the certainty that is coming through this entire passage and that we have to lay down as the foundation for everything we do in this study. The first thing he says is a certainty in crisis. A certainty in crisis. Will you notice with me here? Look at verse 10. In the midst of this crisis period, he says, verse 10, and the gospel must first be published among all nations. What's the certainty he gives in the midst of this political, global, spiritual, extreme crisis? He says, my good news is going to go through the whole world. And friends, do you know what a wonderful certainty that is? Jesus says, my word is going out to the ends of the world right now. It must. It must. Friends, ground yourself in that truth. Mark 1 started by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And now here in Mark chapter 13, Jesus is pointing ahead to this awful global crisis and challenge that's coming. And he's saying, don't worry, my good news, my gospel is going through the whole world. Jesus guarantees it. It's a certainty. That should be very comforting for us. It's at the center of what Jesus is saying here. Notice what also he says. He says in verse 11, that when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought before and what ye shall speak, neither do, do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now, we'll try to understand what he says, but do you, do, you, do you get the main idea? He's saying, don't worry in this time of crisis, in this persecution, in this challenge. The Holy Spirit's going to be with you. He's going to be helping you. He's going to be advising you. He's going to be counseling you. In other words, not only is the gospel through this crisis going to be going to all the world, he says, in the same way, my spirit's going to be with you. You're going to have support. And do you know what ultimately he says? He says, you're going to have deliverance. You're going to have deliverance. Notice in verse number 20, he says, except that the Lord had shortened those days, those days of crisis, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake, his chosen ones, he has shortened the days. And then in verse 13, he tells us, he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Here's what he's saying. In the midst of this crisis, 
My gospel is still going out. In the midst of this crisis, my spirit is going to be your guidance. And in the midst of this crisis, there will be deliverance. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying this. What is your, what is your certainty in the midst of crisis? That I'm above it? That I am beyond it? That my power can work even through it. And that should be great comfort for us. Because all of us are going in some ways through our own pictures, our own foretastes of some of these events. Some of us have gone through persecution and certainly our brothers and sisters are going in through persecution all throughout the world. And the certainty in the midst of whatever crisis that you are going through, that God's people are going through today and tomorrow and the next day through all the world, is that Jesus, the King, is above it. Your certainty in all of these things, is that his good news will continue proceeding. That the Holy Spirit is with you as your comforter to help you and to encourage you and to inspire you no matter what you face. And that deliverance is for all of God's chosen ones following him by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the certainty underlying everything that Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 13. That should be our certainty. But notice then in even glorious, perhaps more glorious certainty. It is not only the certainty in crisis, it is the certainty in his coming. You see here in verse number 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels, and shall gather together his elect, his chosen ones, from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Friends, we can't forget this. What is the great certainty in Mark chapter 13 is that Jesus is coming it's that Jesus will come and Jesus will reign in God's kingdom. Don't miss that. Don't get into the museum piece and start looking at all the details and all the sentence structure and all the context and forget that what he's really saying is he is coming. How does our Bible end in Revelation chapter 22? Behold, I come quickly. I come. And oh, I hope, friends, that as we dive into Mark 13 together, you won't get lost in all the challenges that we'll face interpretively. What I hope is that your faith will be strengthened, that this week you'll be waiting for Jesus' return a little bit more confidently than you were yesterday. He is coming. He will reign no matter what we see. One more certainty, a certainty in our calling. Do you notice what he says here? Verse number 33, he says, Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. And notice what he says to end this chapter in verse 37. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Do you know what Mark 13 is trying to communicate to us? That there is a certainty in whatever crisis we'll face. Jesus is there. God and his power are above it. A certainty in the coming of Jesus Christ. He will come and he will reign. And above all, 
or alongside all of it, the, center, the, the, the certainty in our calling. Watch. Be ready. Jesus will come, and you and I do not know when. I took this from our, um, from our statement of faith on our website. We say this. We believe in the personal, premillennial, and imminent coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that word imminent means? It means, first of all, it's certain. It will come. But do you know the second thing it means? We don't know when. It's imminent. It's at the door. Jesus could come today. And that's why he says, watch, be ready. And I hope that for all of us today, this will not stir in us a greater anxiety if we are truly of God's people, but that this will stir in us a greater hope, a greater confidence, a greater faith. Two things as we close here today. The first thing is this. When we leave this chapter together, I hope that you will see more clearly than you ever have before that Jesus is at the center of Mark 13. Jesus is. That's what's going on in Mark 13. Don't get lost. Don't get lost in all the details and miss Jesus. He is at the center. Listen to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 9. In this book, looking at those end things, at those last times, John sees this vision, and this messenger says to him, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. Don't worship me. Don't fall down at my feet. He said, For I, I, he said, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Now listen to this. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Don't miss that. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is at the heart of all prophecy looking ahead to end times, to last times, to the end things? What is it? It's testifying about Jesus. He will come. He will reign. He will save. Don't miss Jesus in Mark 13. Make sure that you see him most clearly at the center of all human history. And there's one more thing. It's one thing that I think is so fitting on 4th of July weekend. Don't be shaken. Remember where the disciples were. The temple's going down. The center of identity. The center of our religious worship. That's going to be thrown down. You can just see their earthquake happening in their understanding. And Jesus says, boys, it's going to get even worse. It's going to get even harder. But can I tell you something? I'm coming, and I'm reigning, and I'm going to bring everything to fulfillment. You know, friends, it's been nearly 250 years since this grand American experiment began. And like I said earlier today, we have been blessed beyond measure in our liberty to serve God and worship him according to our conscience. We should not miss it. Friends, we have avoided so much of the crises that other lands and others of our brothers and sisters have faced and do face even now today. And it may be, friends, one day, it may be that there will not be one stone of this great country that stands on top of itself. It may be. It may be one day there will be crisis and persecution coming to our land that we cannot imagine. I don't know. I'm certainly not predicting it. But we must say 
our American reality may yet be shaken beyond what we can imagine. And here's the point. Don't be shaken. Because we're not in it to lay a foundation of a kingdom of this country, of our grand American experiment. Ultimately, what we look forward to is this certainty. Jesus will come and Jesus will reign. It is his kingdom that matters. It is his kingdom that cannot be shaken. Will you listen to Hebrews 12 as we close this morning? Hebrews says that God's voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, those earthly things like the temple that are shaken with an earthquake and crumble to the ground. He, he says that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. What can't be shaken with an earthquake? The eternal kingdom that Jesus has promised to reign over. He says, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Oh, friends, we're going to go through the museum of Mark 13 together, and I'm going to plead with you. I'm going to plead with you again. See Jesus at the center of it. And as you look at all the crises enveloping our globe, all the political controversies swirling around our country today, remember that this will be shaken. This country will be shaken. All these events can and will be removed. But one thing cannot be shaken. One thing will never be removed. And that's the eternal kingdom that is for all those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ and one day we'll be eternally with him.